0: I saw that we may have an Indian summer starting Wednesday. Supposed to get back up in the 70s and even high 70s. Uh, Katie's not real thrilled. I'm looking forward to fall as well. Nice colors, nice crisp mornings. Well, anyway. We are in Hebrews chapter 2. As you're turning there, I uh, just want to thank you all for praying for me this last week had a good uh, ministry up in Canada, um, things went well, I thought, uh, the uh, students were certainly challenged by the scriptures, I was spending my time primarily focused on um, understanding the uh, book of Deuteronomy from the perspective of, of, frankly, a lot of it was Hebrews, uh, looking Hebrews quotes the Old Testament, and specifically Deuteronomy, quite a bit. And just showing that uh, Christ focus that comes out of the book of Deuteronomy, if we understand it correctly. So it has been a, it was really, a, I th- thought, a really profitable time. Um, the, cha- the students were really challenged by it. Uh, most people, when they think of Deuteronomy, they think about dust and Sahara Desert. Or is it Sierra Desert? Whichever it is. Um, Sahara. Yeah. Uh, they think Sahara Desert, they think dust and dryness and and uh, deadness, but I think they were really uh, blessed by uh, probably what would be described as a more biblical understanding of the book of Deuteronomy in light of its storyline and the historical um, storyline of the scriptures. So, uh, thank you all for praying. If you think about it this week, if you pray for the students as they uh, study for, for their final exam um, because they, the, they get the privilege of taking the exam after I leave, uh, which is really a blessing because I don't have to deal with all the arguments and questions. Wouldn't that be great if you could give exams, huh, and they don't argue with you afterwards because they don't have access to you? <laughs> in any case, we are in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. Where we're looking at 10 through uh, 13 this morning. In order to really understand Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, we really have to look at Hebrews 2, 1 through 10 again, or 1 through 9 again, so I'm going to remind you of that real briefly since we weren't here last week. But before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for the opportunity this morning that we can again open your scriptures, and I pray that you help us. Help us to comprehend your love for us. Help us to comprehend in a greater way what you have accomplished for us, what you are accomplishing for us, and what you ultimately will accomplish for us pray, Lord, that you will give us, as, in light of our study this morning, grateful hearts, worshipful hearts, praising hearts that praise you and rejoice uh, that we stand forgiven and no longer condemned in you. So help us this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. In order to properly understand Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 14, again, we need to remember what we've covered up to this point in time. And so let me just real briefly remind you that... Chapter 1 is looking at the supremacy of Christ, that Christ is supreme over all things, all created things, and we address that pretty much at length, that that no matter what the created thing is, the focus is on the prophets, and the focus is upon the uh, the angels, but as we argued in our study, that it includes much more than that. It includes uh, all created things, that he is far superior, and not even any type of comparison between christ and all of those in light of that we came to chapter two last week where we saw or several weeks ago i mean where we saw uh starting in verse one therefore in light of that truth we must play pay much closer attention to what we have heard about the supremacy of jesus lest we drift drift away from it for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we, the author of Hebrews wants to challenge the reader, how shall we, and we ought to personalize that, how shall I escape so great a salvation if I neglect it? Or to read it uh, completely, how shall we neglect if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to by us, or to us by those who heard while god also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the holy spirit distributed according to his will for it was not he turns to angels again for it was not to angels that god subjected the world to come of which we are speaking it has been testified somewhere what is man And the somewhere is psalm chapter eight what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him you have made him a little lower than the angels you crowned him with glory And honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who, for a little while, was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might suffer or taste death for everyone. And that brings us to our text today. We're going to reference chapter two several times throughout the the book or the study today but come to chapter 2 verse 10 where we are today for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist to bring many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have all have one source that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying i will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation i will sing your praise and again i will put my trust in him and again behold i and the chi- and the children god has given me we could continue on but for sake of time we will stop there next week lord we willing we'll pick up from there and move on But uh, I don't think I would be able to have enough time to continue on today. So that's why we're stopping there. It is important to understand as we consider verses 10 through 14, however, that verses 10 through 14 is building on chapter 1, yes, but more specifically, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In light of that, as we study 10 through, uh, through 14, we need to be reminded of something. And that is first, we need to be reminded there was a very, very strong exhortation that we saw in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. That strong exhortation is, how shall we, verse 3, neglect, if we neglect such a great salvation? This text is assuming you remember that. Now, I'm not going to assume that. So I'm going to remind you again. So in light of that reality, we will have to understand and reference the idea that the exhortation is there for 10 through 14. In other words, what he's saying is, before he said, Christ is superior. And then he says, if we, if we neglect, how can we escape? Well, neglecting is not remembering and responding to the reality of his superior position to all created things. The implication is we will not neg- escape if we neglect. Now, some have asked me if I may pause that for a second, going back to chapter uh, 2, verse 3. Some have said to me, well, but wait a second, Steve. Aren't we eternally secure? Aren't we eternally secure? You know, the old once saved, always saved. And yet verse 3 says, how should we escape if we neglect? And the term is we. And so I just want to pause on that just to remind you in this exhortation. I appreciate what, what another theolo- how another theologian summed it up. He described it as a... And boy, now that I now that I'm trying to say it, it uh, a contingent certainty. Really important concept. Our salvation is a contingent certainty. I'm not mean to go back and preach chapter 3, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, but I want to remind us. It is not merely a certainty. This is why you've heard me over the years say that I, I believe in eternal security, but I kind of reject the phrase once saved, always saved because it's not a complete picture. And I like the idea of a contingent certainty. Our salvation is certain. It's based upon what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And I think we'd all agree to that. But at the same time, it's a contingency in that if the idea is argued very strongly in the Scriptures that, that for example, he who perseveres how long? to the end, will be saved. Correct? That's what the Scriptures say. He who perseveres to the end will be saved. Yet, at the same time, we hear the Scriptures say, Jesus said in John chapter 10, that of all the Father gives me, how many does he lose? None. So how do we fit these things together? Well, it's a contingent certainty. He doesn't lose any. That's a certainty. The contingency is that those who persevere to the end will ultimately be saved, But yet, at the same time, we are saved because of his work, not our work. Correct? And the idea is that his work is a work that doesn't just have its effect on the day that we are saved, justification, the day that we are moved from death to life, but his work on the cross has its effect not just on the day of our salvation, but all the way through our glorification, that is, our sanctification as well. Now, why do I bring this up? Because we're going to talk about sanctification a little bit today. And so it's very important that we understand that it is a certainty, but it's a contingent certainty. And what I mean by that is it's contingent on us persevering to the end. Now, it's contingent upon the Spirit at work in us so that we persevere to the end. The only way we persevere to the end is because the Holy Spirit is working on us. Does that make sense? And performing His perfect work in us. So the contingency is also not us. It's the contingency is upon who, the Holy Spirit, God, to do His work, which He has promised to do. And so the evidence of that contingency leading to the certainty is that we are growing and changing. We are becoming more and more like God and less and less like our old father Satan. We're becoming we're reflecting more and more the love of Christ and not the love of the world. We're reflecting more and more that the that that we are loving the things that God loves and more and more we're reflecting that we hate the things that God hates. so it's a contingent certainty, but the contingency is all upon the one who shows mercy. The contingency is all upon God and he does his perfect work, so ultimately. If he starts it, as Philippians 1.6 says, if he begun, begins a good work in us, he will continue to perfect it to the day of Jesus Christ. So all that to be said, I wanted to go back to chapter 3 and explain that. What we're basically doing is we're, we're dist- attempting to destroy this idea that, that the once saved, always sa- saved denies, and that mm-hmm. is that there's something in between. See, the once saved, always saved looks at the past, our justification, and looks at our future, our glorification and glory, and it ignores everything in the middle. Now, I've said before, I've described it before as once saved, always persevering, always saved, but even that doesn't really capture it correctly because it implies who's doing the persevering. We are, right? But the idea of persevering is, or at least it can be construed that way. But the real idea is the contingency is based completely, and the perseverance is based completely on the Spirit at work. And when the Spirit, who is powerful, is at work, we do what? We do persevere. We do grow and change. We do reflect the love of Christ. We do. So someone's not reflecting the love of Christ, if someone's not growing and changing, it says something not just about their present state, it says something about their future state and their past state, correct? It says something about all three. So it's important that we, we grapple with that. So again, the phrase that I really like is a contingent certainty. By the way, Andrew, you'll appreciate that. That's a Voss. thought you'd appreciate that. <coughs> so with that in mind, <coughs> that exhortation that we see in chapter 3 is so important. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The answer is we can't. And the answer continues with the idea the reason why we can't escape is because if we're neglecting, it's evidence of something. That the contingency isn't real for you. Does that make sense? So the exhortation at the same time is still real because we work because he works, right? We glorify Christ because the Holy Spirit is at work in us so that Christ is glorified. It's not that we're passive and he's doing all of that. We are active because he's active. We are only active because he's made us alive, Ephesians chapter 2. Enough of a theological lesson, but a very important theological lesson as well. With that in mind, we have the exhortation, and I I, I bring all that up to remind you, please keep in mind the exhortation as we work our way through this passage, because this passage is inherently encouraging and inherently uplifting, and it should be, but at the same time, in the back of our minds should be the exhortation. Which brings us to chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, where we have that amazing quote, in, out of Psalm chapter eight, I want to remind you again: it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. O oh man, or what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the Son of Man that you care for him? If you remember, two weeks ago I spoke in this text and I said something about that. Verse um, five, the end of verse five, is talking about you and I, and it asks the big, two big questions: What is man that you are mindful of him? What is the Son of Man that you care for him? And the answer is, the unspoken answer, because it's a rhetorical question. It's an obvious question. So the answer would be, what is man? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's a painful thing to hear. But it's a true thing to hear. Because if we hear that and embrace that by the power of the Holy Spirit, then the rest of it becomes beautiful. one of our problems going back again to the message two weeks ago is when we think too highly of ourselves Christ we by nature must lower down it is a scale and it's like a scale this way you cannot say man's pretty good and Christ is pretty good can't do that the higher we raise up our view of man the more we lower our view of, of Christ it's inevitable Because the higher I view myself, the less need I have of Christ. The less desirable Christ is. If I may use the illustration, it's a stupid, amazingly stupid illustration. But it works. If you have been... A lot of you have something to drink here. In fact, almost everybody does. If you've been drinking away and you've been drinking and drinking and drinking and you're pretty well saturated, you're pretty well hydrated, and I come along and say, hey, I'd like to give you a glass of water, you could say, oh, that'd be good, right? Oh, thank you. You're grateful, aren't you? Right? You'd be grateful. On the other hand, if it's 85 degrees out, you just ran a marathon, and there was no water on the course, and you had no water with you, And you cross the finish line. More probably said you drag your sorry self across the finish line. Right? And you're all cramped up. Your mouth is dry. You're not sweating anymore. Your body temperature is no longer 98.6. It's more like about 103. That's pretty bad, right, Abby? Get the picture so far? And I walk up to you and said, how would you like a glass of water? What do you think you'd say? (laughs) Where were you 21 miles ago? Exactly. What would you say? Now, you may very well still say thank you, right? But I'll bet you it's not going to be like, oh, thank you. Right? First of all, you'd probably be really hoarse. So you'd probably be like, thank you. But I'll bet you'd be amazingly grateful, wouldn't you? Does that make sense? That's a stupid illustration because he doesn't just take people who are a little bit thirsty, does he? Or even a lot thirsty. He takes people who are dead and makes them alive. Who is man that you're mindful of him? You're nothing. And he brings everything. And when we realize that, how nothing we are, and we realize how everything he is, you know what happens? Mindfulness flows, doesn't it? The more we realize that, the more blown away we are. But it has to start with Psalm chapter 8, who is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him. And the real answer, absolutely nothing. We bring nothing to the table. (laughs) And yet he goes on and says, and 7 and 8 is referring to Jesus Christ then. And he says, man is nothing. You made him Christ a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now remember that thought. Even though in verse uh, at, at the end of verse 7 he says, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a li- who for a little while was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone he's going to build off of that this morning that's evident when he says for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering the first or the verse 10 in its entirety is talking primarily about not Jesus Christ Although it's referencing Jesus Christ, it's talking about God the Father. So it says, for it was fitting that he, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist. Now we know that Jesus Christ was involved in the creation as well, but the primary mover and shaker of creation in the in the ordaining of all things to be created was by the Father according to the Scriptures. So it says, for it was fitting that he, the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, including you and me, we exist purely and simply because of the Father's ordaining you and I to exist. He says it was fitting for that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of so, uh, their salvation perfect through suffering. There's a number of things we could say in this text. First of all, you'll notice it says, in bringing many sons to glory. Could I just point out two things about that phrase? It doesn't say bringing all, correct? The first phrase says all. For whom and by whom all things exist. By the way, going back to the first phrase, you'll, I want you to notice it's not just that he created all things, but he created all for himself. Kind of an allusion to Romans eleven 36, isn't it? From him, through him, to him. He it says it's for there. So we go on into the second phrase. In bringing many sons to glory, I want you to notice it's many sons. It's not everyone. He says all in the first. All are created for his glory, but and all for him. But it was fitting in bringing many sons to glory. So not every, everyone gets saved, only some. He says in bringing many sons, there are many that he, that he, that he will save. If you're a believer, you're part of the many. What does, that, what does that mean? As part of the many, that means the many that are ultimately in nature from the get-go, nothing. Right? Psalm 8 that we saw before. The many are those, at verse 3, that don't neglect such a great salvation. Going all the way back to verse 3. The many are those who pay much closer attention to what we've heard by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that we don't drift away. <clears throat> but what he, what's really interesting is what he says in that second phrase, in bringing many sons to, what? To glory. That's a really important... In the context here, a very important word, when you hear about many bringing many sons to glory and you think through your theological construct, oftentimes what we think about is what? When you hear glory, being brought to glory, you think about what? Being brought to heaven, right? And oftentimes you could say that's correct. And even contextually, oftentimes that will be correct. In this text, that's merely implied. That is true. It is absolutely true. As a matter of fact, this text I find very intriguing. Not just this phrase, but the entire text we're looking at this morning, because in this entire text, you have both justification, sanctification, and glorification. Remember, again, justification, I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and God made me alive. That's justification, right? And Gave me the faith to believe. Justification, Ephesians chapter 2. Sanctification is the process of God at work in us to grow us and change us so that we more and more, as we just said, reflect Jesus Christ and reflect his love for us in the way we live, think and respond and speak. Glory glory or glorification is, is many times in the scriptures talked about as the time when we arrive in heaven we go from this earth in death or when Christ returns and we are translated and given a perfect body and all the effects of sin removed from us so we're no longer even tempted to sin we're only glorifying Christ what an amazing day that will be amen that day is surely coming so glory now this text when he says bring many sons to glory includes that but it's a secondary idea It's merely secondary. We need to keep that in mind, okay? But it's only a secondary idea. What he means when he says, uh, in bringing many sons to glory, what he's referring to is more the primary focus. By the way, it also refers to the first step of the process, our justification but what he mainly means here in bringing many sons to glory is sanctification. You don't typically think about sanctification as being brought to glory. You think about a time when sin no longer has any hold on us, when all the the threads that have been interwoven in our lives because our hearts are still struggling with with sin that those Threads are all removed as if it's like a supernatural surgery taking place where all those threads are removed and we simply and purely glorify Christ in, in heaven. That's what we think about. But glory in this text is much more dramatic than that because he's arguing that our justification is being brought to glory. Our sanctification is being brought to glory and our being brought to heaven is being brought to glory as well. But primarily in this text, our sanctification is being brought to glory. It's a whole different way to think about it. Well, how can we say that? Well, it begs the question, what does the writer of Hebrews mean when he says being brought to glory? Right? And the context will guide that as it always does. Like I said before, many times the context says heaven. This context does not. So in order to get it, we've got to go again back to verse uh, 6 and 7 and 8. All the way through verse 9. So look at it again. What is man... That you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him. The answer again is nothing. Verse 7. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with. And here's our first introduction to the word, right? You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now we're starting to get a clue. How does Jesus Christ have this crown of glory? In the text, in the verse we just read. Help me out. It's not written on my forehead. How does he have this crown of glory? What does this crown of glory look like in verse 7 and 8? What's that? Kingship rulership. Things are subject to him. How many things are subject to him? What does it say? Verse 8, everything is in subjection to him in a variety of different ways, right? Like animals are in in subjection to him. The earth is in subjection to him. The air, the clouds, everything is in subjection to him as subjects, right? And each subject serves a different thing, right? Serves a different purpose, right? Make sense so far? Well, it goes on in verse eight. Now, putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His what control, right? So we now know that this crown of glory that Jesus Christ has involves subjection, and that is everything being functioning or everything functioning under Jesus Christ's control as He sees fit, right? According to his plan. Okay. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't see everything in subjection. I don't necessarily view my truck and, and I see, oh, yeah, I see exactly how, how God has it under subjection. I may get glimpses at times, but it's just glimpses, right? Because it's, at some level, it's behind the curtain, right? I can't see any the other side of the curtain. But he goes on. But we see him, and I want you to notice something. Words mean something, right? Who sees him? What? We do. Who's the we? Who's the we? The many. Absolutely. The many are the we. Or to go all the way back to chapter 2 early on in the book, right? Who are the we? We who pay much closer attention. We who don't drift away, right? We who are, to go to verse 3, who are not neglecting so great a salvation. That's the we. We see Him. I said that two weeks ago. That's a key phrase, right? We see Him. We gaze upon Him. We look at Him. We continue to, because the present active indicative, continue to look at Him and gaze upon Him in all His glory and the, the picture is to look longingly but we see him who for a little while by, by the way one other thing i want to say when he says we see him is that future or is it present or is it past it's present isn't it again this is the sanctifying time this is not the glory this is not what we think about typically is glorification time heaven right it's present active and active. it's right now right here we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That folds back into chapter 10. The second phrase, in bringing many sons to glory, he's saying here, this glory is now. The glory is here. The glory is now. Will there be glory? Because we are translated, and made perfect in heaven? Of course. As a matter of fact, it's going to be a quantum leap forward, isn't it? It's going to be a quantum change. It's going to be an amazing, it's going to be a mind-blowing change when we are translated into glory. But what the writer of Hebrews wants to get across to us today in this text is don't get so caught up in that that you miss this because the focus of the writer of Hebrews is this. Right here, right now. And Christians for too long have got caught up in that and that. And not this. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying to us, no, this is a time of glory. So, what, you know, in this little phrase, you know what we've got to wrestle with? is changing our view of this. Should we long for that day? Well, of course. What does, G, what does John say in, in the end of Revelation 22? Even so, Lord Jesus, what? Come quickly. Amen and amen. Why? Because that's the grand culmination. That's the wedding feast, right? This is when the bride and groom come together. Woo! But can you imagine a bride being totally uninterested in the preparation time? Sammy, Laura? You guys are the most recently sa- uh, married? I almost said saved. Most recently married? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being ad- I, at times? It's tough, right? At times is a pain in the neck, isn't it? The planning? <laughs> 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 Mike Sidner shaking his head no. No, it's easy. What are you talking about? You're pretty straightforward. Yeah, you know, whatever. Yeah, he's a guy. If you lose track of this time frame, what's going to happen on the wedding day? What's going to happen, Laura, you think? It's going to be, it's going to be a train wreck, isn't it? Or let's change it from, from our experience to the biblical picture, if I may. What's going to happen if you don't arrive on that day with oil in your lamp? What's the wedding going to be like? No bridegroom, right? No bridegroom, no oil in the lamp, no preparation. So the argue, argument of the writer of Hebrews in this phrase is this is a time of glory. This is a time of reveling in. This is a time of wonder and amazement, anticipation, longing, right? Doesn't I mean, that makes sense when we think about engagement and wedding, right? This is, this is a time of enthralling anticipation. And he's saying, in effect, this is a time of amazing glory. Well, how is that possible? It could be a time of amazing glory. Because this is the time frame. Ready? This is the time frame when we begin to realize the most amazingly beautiful, wonderful privilege of being under subjection to the one that loves us completely. Right? I mean, am I right? This is a time when the thing that Christ did on the cross at Calvary, the effect of it. Oh, yeah, it was, it was experienced that day, right, that we came to faith in Christ? It was experienced that day, wasn't it? You were dead, you became alive. You hated Jesus, you loved Jesus. It was an incredible day. The transition was incredible. You were an enemy of the cross, you became a friend of the cross, a soldier of the cross. You were an enemy of Christ, and you became adopted as sons. Oh, my goodness, that's breathtaking. But you didn't understand anything at all about this, did you? A second ago, you were dead. I expect that when Lazarus came walking out of the tomb, he didn't understand anything of it. (laughs) You know, when all of a sudden, the lights that were off came on, and his first word he heard was, Lazarus! come forth he's like huh (laughs) what and he came forward but do you think anything made sense to him do you think anything at all made sense to him at that point Do you think he's like oh yeah this this is the the way it's supposed to be Uh uh-huh i don't think so I think probably the only thing in his mind is, like, I'm confused, absolutely confused. So were you the day you came to faith in Christ. But this time of glory, how is this time of glory? Because in our lives, who's us, those who are paying much closer attention to those who are not drifting away, those who are not neglecting their salvation are, are beginning to realize more and more how beautiful it is that we're under his subjection or we're under subjection to him. He's our, to use Andrew's term, our king, our ruler. He's a merciful ruler, is he not? He's an amazingly gracious ruler, is he not? And he gave you his righteousness, didn't he? He gave you the inheritance, did he not? He gave you his spirit. He's promised never to leave you nor, nor forsake you. And there's no qualifiers to that. Isn't that stunning? And he's promised to be at work in you to grow you, to change you, so that you more and more reflect Jesus Christ. He's promised that you'd yield fruit and he's promised that he'll prune you and he's promised that as you respond rightly to it you'll yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness and that means much fruit he's promised it wow to be under his control to be under his authority now all things are under his control right that's what it said but remember what I said all things are under his control in different ways are they not Ultimately, everything brings glory to God, doesn't it? In some way, some way, form or fashion, even unsaved people, right? Even this this candle right here brings glory to God somehow. Your chair somehow brings glory to God. The mulch somehow brings glory to God. Even this this uh, swing set that's not used as much now as it used to be, right? Unless you have visitors. (laughs) There you go. In two weeks it'll be used. You're looking forward to it, aren't you? In some way it brings glory to God. Not in the way those who don't neglect bring glory to God. Not in the same way that, that those who pay much closer attention to bring glory to God. And they do that because the Spirit is at work in us in ways differently than the Spirit is at work in anything else. Radically different. Because He causes us. You see, if I may say this, unsaved people are very little different from this. Do you realize that? Do you realize that? This glorifies God. They glorify God. This will be destroyed they will be destroyed. Now, they will receive the wrath. This will not receive wrath, so it's different. But this will be destroyed. And they will be destroyed. But for those who are in Christ, he works differently, doesn't he? He changes them so that they actively glorify God by reflecting him in dramatic, powerful ways. So it's in this time of glory that we have the privilege, as it were, of bringing glory to the one who has subjected us to himself. Uniquely, only us. Our activity, our living life, our walking through the nooks and crannies of our lives, crannies of our lives, all the things, big, small, significant, insignificant, even irrelevant stuff of our lives are God at work bring glory to himself by bringing all things in our lives under subjection for his glory it's a time of glory it's an amazing time of glory now he goes on in the text for it's fitting that he for whom by whom for, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory now the main point of the text comes up next. Should make, see what we we're just talking about, as beautiful as it is, is a minor point, isn't it? It's the, it's like it's it's almost like the result of what he's about ready to talk about. In bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So let's slice out the one that we just the, the phrase we just spent our time in for a second for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist should make the founder of their salvation the people who he's talking about their salvation perfectly suffering so what is he saying it was fitting that jesus the the idea it was fitting let me change that a little bit it was fitting that god the father should make jesus the founder of your salvation Perfect through suffering. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus was not perfect before he suffered. What it means is complete or finished work. That's the idea of complete. I'm, I'm sorry, perfect, I mean. And Hebrews uses it repeated, the term perfect repeatedly throughout the book, and every time it means the same thing. It's perfect as in completed or complete. And so he says it was fitting that the Father should take Jesus and make him perfect or complete through suffering. Later on, he's going to say one part of that suffering later in this chapter, he's going to say that suffering is for some really important purposes, and I'll reference it in just a second. But at this point, it's saying that it was appropriate that the Father takes the Son and who is the founder of your salvation and mine, those people who are the many sons, in verse 10, who should make the founder of their salvation, which is referring to you and me, perfect through suffering. It was, it, he says it's fitting that this one, Jesus, his son, should suffer. Now, there's two ways in which we should view this, that it's fitting that he should suffer. So let me present them to you. The first way that is, is that it is fitting that the father should make the son suffer, and we can't we can't um, sterilize it without saying we we, we must not sterilize. So we must add parts to it. He should suffer for you. It's not sterilized. This is a for you thing. So the first way in which it was fitting they should suffer is because. These many sons he just references that he's bringing to glory, present tense, which includes past tense and includes future tense. It is fitting that Jesus, for these many sons, should suffer. Why? Here's why. Number one, because you and I rebelled. It is fitting that he should suffer. Now, I want you to wrap your mind around that for a second. You see, you and I rebelled, and in rebelling, we could very well say what? It's fitting that you and I should suffer, right? That's the most fitting, isn't it, that you and I should suffer? Why? Why is that? Why is it fitting that you and I should suffer for our sins? Yes, that's true, Lois, that it's because we rebelled, but there's something behind that. We've got to drill behind that one. It's fitting that you and I should suffer. Why? Not because of who you and I are, but because of who the Father is, right? Because who God is. Who is God? He's holy, isn't he? He's complete. He's not quasi holy, he's not mostly holy. He's not good and holy. He's perfectly holy in every way. He's completely holy in every way. There is not the slightest little tinge, not even one in a billion tinge of unholiness in the Father. Of course, in the whole Trinity there isn't. It is fitting for you and I to suffer. What did he say early on in this, in this chapter? Verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and, second half of the verse, and every what? Transgression or what? Disobedience. What happened to him? Received a what? Just retribution. Think about that for a second. What happens to to disobedience or rebellion? Just retribution. So if you don't think it's fitting for you to suffer and die, which, by the way, is just a picture of absorbing the wrath of God, right? That's why I usually say to people there's two ways that we can deal with our sin. We can either receive the wrath, take on the wrath that belongs to us, right? We can take it on. We can can pay for it ourselves. You really can. Do you realize that? You can pay for the wrath yourself. You're good to go. In your natural state, you can pay for the wrath yourself. It's just that there's so much wrath, it'll take eternity to pay for it. Right? It'll take eternity to pay for it. What that means is you'll never finish. You'll never finish paying. You'll perpetually, for eternity, be a recipient of wrath. It is very fitting for you to receive it. It's very receiving, very fitting for me to receive that, that suffering, isn't it? But instead, what does he say? It is fitting, doesn't he? It was fitting that he, the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering so the other thing that is that it's referencing is this the idea of fitting has to draw us back to again verse 2 where it's fitting for us because we have rebelled and we have sinned we've been disobedient so it's fitting for us to receive it and those who rebel and those who disobey always receive a just retribution don't they of course they do well what that means is this In order for Jesus Christ to take on your sin and mine, which the Scriptures record that he did, that means that Jesus himself needed to suffer. He needed to receive wrath. Why? Because wrath is always focused on sin. Isn't it? God's wrath is always focused on sin. So, Jesus Christ... Took on your sin. He, I've described it many times before. He stood in your place and he took on an alien sin. Yours. It was fitting that that one who took on alien sin. Should receive the alien wrath. For you. And me. God the Father said. It is fitting for Jesus. To wear your sin. It is fitting. For you. For you who were disobedient, who wandered astray, who went their own way, who despised and rejected Jesus Christ, and realizing that every sin and rebellion deserves wrath. It is fitting for Jesus to suffer for the many. By the way, as an aside, it is interesting when we say he suffered for this, all, the, all the sins of the world. This text says many. Just, wrap that, just chew on that one for a little bit. Pretty radical thought. But he took on the sin and absorbed the wrath. It was fitting. The Father looks at that and says, it was fitting. Now, later on in the text, we're not going to get to today, but later in the text, he's going to come back to this again about Jesus suffering. And the call, therefore, is for us to what? Suffer. With him. He says it a variety of different ways. We live out his sufferings in our suffering. Now, that doesn't mean suffering because I like got cancer. It means suffering because of righteousness' sake. That's a whole other issue. We'll get to that in a later day. So it was the father who said it is fitting that the son should be someone as the founder of your salvation and mine to be made perfect or complete through suffering. And he did. Not about you. But that already begins to bring to my heart some pretty significant rejoicing. When I look at the storyline. As one who was Isaiah 53 completely. And God said, yeah, it's really fitting that Steve suffer eternity. But it's more fitting for Jesus to suffer in his place. That's not not even finishing a marathon with no water and craving water and rejoicing in the water you've gotten. This is the water of life. Because remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well? She said, if you drink this water, it doesn't matter how thirsty you are, right? But if you drink the water from this well, what will happen? You'll thirst again. So that's why I say my illustration is really stupid. But if you drink from the water, I offer you what? You'll never thirst again. He satiates you. He so absolutely satisfies you. You never become dehydrated spiritually again. And by the way, you were so dehydrated you were a raisin. Spiritually speaking, right? See, you were. Or better illustrated, you were a petrified log. And he brought you back to life. And he spiritually saturated you. And if you're his, you remain saturated. Isn't that incredible? Now I don't know about you. But that brings me to rejoicing. But if you need a little help yet, let's move on. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, which, of course, who's the one source? God the Father, right? Make sense? The one source for Jesus, the one source for all of us, is God the Father. That doesn't mean that Jesus Christ was created as we were. It's just that. Jesus Christ is is someone who, in the grand scheme of things, does respond to the Father. We all have one one source. But notice, he who sanctifies, Jesus Christ, and those who are sanctified, and the idea is we're growing and changing, we, we we are recognizing and responding to the truth of his superiority, his, his, his authority, and we are recognizing our being subjected under him, we all have the same source, and we're recognizing that it's the Father, which is why Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's not ashamed to call you brothers because you're doing so well. He's not ashamed to call you brother because of, of anything in you. He's not ashamed to call you brother because of your source. Do you realize that? That's what he says. He's not ashamed to call you a brother. Jesus Christ is not ashamed. And ladies, don't be offended by being called a brother here. Okay? it's talking about intimate family relationship. He's not ashamed to call you brother. The alternative is what? What? I never knew you as in enemy or non-brother, right? Non-family, right? I'm using both terms because both terms are appropriate. Enemy, non-family. You're either family or an enemy, aren't you? So he's not ashamed to call you brother. Why? Well, it's not because of the one who works or runs or wills, but it's because of him who gives mercy, right? So it's not up to you. You're not being called brother you're doing so well you're being called brother why because whereas before it God the father wasn't your source was he now ultimately know at a base level he's everyone's source and everything's source right everything exists because of him we already saw that but he's talking about something radically different source in what this new life this glory God the father is our source To be able to be in this time of glory in context. Whereas anybody who's not a brother or not a friend who's an enemy is not in this source, right? They're not in this place. Therefore, God is not their source because he's not moved them there. To use another illustration from the Old Testament, there's Jacob and there's Esau. Esau, Jacob received an amazing covenant, didn't he? He received a covenant of life and peace with God. And in that is a relationship, right? I'll be your God and you'll be my people, right? There's there's a relationship there. And and along with it, there's land too, right? Certainly there's land with it, no question about that. But there is an amazing relationship going on there. With Esau, he got a covenant as well. What was his covenant? It was just a covenant of land. That's all he got, land. If you read the storyline when when, the, when uh, Israelites came up on the east side of the, when the Hebrews came up on the east side of the Dead Sea, after 40 years of wandering to take possession of the land, they come up on the side, and they come to Esau's land, and God says what to them? Cross over the land, but don't take anything. Don't take any water, don't take any food, don't take any land, don't take anything. Because I've given a covenant to him. So if you take some water, pay for it. If you take some food, pay for it. Don't take it, you ask. And you pay for it. You buy it off of them. Because I gave him a covenant and his descendants a covenant. It's a covenant of land, and I take care of my covenants. But there's a radical difference between Esau and Jacob, is there not? It's, It's like a quantum difference. There's no comparison. It's only a contrast. There's a minor comparison, land, land. But it's, it's a dramatically different context and contrast. So, in the same way here, on one level, on a basic, really insignificant level, all, every single thing that's ever been created has the same source, God the Father, right? But not glory. When it comes to the glory aspect, it, everything changes. And that's why he says here in the text... That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Not because you do so well, but because the source for what we have, that this glory thing, is the Father. Whereas before all we had was wrath, the source of glory is the Father. And so he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Today, As we sit here, I've got to watch my time. I'm really running behind. As we sit here, I want you to understand something. We are living in glory. And the source of the glory is the Father. And the ramifications of the glory is that Jesus Christ today is not ashamed to call us brothers. That'll blow our minds. He goes on, real briefly. He goes on. He says, "What? Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. That is, Jesus will proclaim your name. Who are the brothers? Well, he doesn't give us any explanation what that is. So we could say it, it could be it could be to fellow saints. Could be the angels. But the idea is." He will identify with us as his children, as belonging to him, as being in subjection under him in a glory status. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Did you hear what he just said? What did Jesus say he will do about you? Isn't it crazy to think about God the Son will sing praises about you? And the implication, then, is the congregation most likely is something in, it's a group of of gathering where? Where? Most likely in heaven, isn't it? It's a gathering of of people in heaven, beings in heaven. By the way, if you wonder what that may look like, we get a little glimpse. Job? How confident is is God in Job? Pretty confident, right? He sings his praise, doesn't he? Doesn't he? Yeah, I look at Job, and my goodness, he's glorifying me. Sing singing his praises. Do you realize today... Because your source is God, the Father, Jesus Christ, in the heavenly places, in the heavenly congregation, sing your praises. Isn't that wild? Do you deserve it? Have you done well enough for God to sing your praises? No. Not even close. He sings your praises. Because you have his righteousness. Because he loves you. It's all him. He goes on, and again, he says, says, I will put my trust in him. Now, that him there is referring to God the Father. I will put my tr- my praise in him. And again, in the same text in Isaiah, behold, I and the children God has given me. There you know, that one is referring to to him speaking to god i'll put or speaking about god i'll put my trust in him and he goes on he says what notice the confidence jesus says to those who are in this glory time frame he says this i will put my trust in him god the Father, and again i and the children god has given me drag the previous phrase in, will put his, my, our trust in him you hear the confidence you hear the confidence there? That's that contingent certainty. Those who are saved will what? Put their trust in Him. Why? Because in the Father. Why? Because we look at what the Father has ordained to happen in Christ. And then we look at what the Father has done in ordaining that we should be saved. That is, to go back to John 10, the Father has ordained what? That. You and I, if you're a believer, will be given to Jesus, and he doesn't lose any, and it takes our breath away, and so we find ourselves looking at the the historical redemptive story in the scriptures and in our own lives, and we say, wow, if he could take me who is dead in my trespasses and sins and make me alive, and if he could give me an, a, the faith in order to believe by his grace and the result is by the power of the spirit I find myself believing and am saved if he could to drill behind that storyline could take and send his son to the to, to, to this earth in the form of a baby who would grow up and die on the cross taking on my sin and satisfy the wrath of God surely I could trust him Surely I can trust him. He's done all the heavy lifting. He's done it all. All to him I owe. All to him I owe. Friends, could I just say this real quickly? We certainly have the exhortation. We recognize that in the beginning. But it's important that we remember what Christ has accomplished. Not only just that he's superior to angels and prophets, but can I just say this in this context? He's superior to your sin. He is superior. He rules over your sinful ways. He forgives. He cleanses. He's made new. And so today we live in this time of glory. Let us change our view of this time. Long for the time that's yet to come. But let's change our view of this time of glory that we realize it is a time of glory. It is time of bringing glory to the one who has loved us so, so much. And I suspect when we do, we will find ourselves saying, how good is our God? How worthy is our Redeemer? How worthy of praise? How worthy of rejoicing. How worthy of longing for. How worthy of dreaming about. How worthy of hoping in. How worthy of serving. How worthy of submitting to the one who has loved us this much, Amen? Let's rejoice. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your great and amazing love. We have barely barely scratched the surface and so we ask you to open our eyes and help us to see the depths we've barely sampled so we ask you to open our mouths metaphorically speaking to feast on the rest we've barely got comprehension of the truth and so we ask you, Lord, to open our minds and help us to see. Help us to comprehend. And we ask you to blow us away with your deep, mighty, all-powerful, all-encompassing love. We live in this time of glory because you have been glorified, because you have suffered in our place. And so, Lord, I pray that you help us that we will glory in you and not neglect so great a salvation that we will pay much closer attention to and that you will be pleased. In your name I pray, amen.